please be aware that this is a recording of a writing festival. As such, there are some adult concepts, probably a bit of swearing, and sometimes there might even be some triggering elements, so do be aware of that. If anything does make you feel uncomfortable, please stop listening at any point. Also, we do recommend you pop on some headphones. That way, the only person who can get offended is you. Welcome back to the Rights for Festivals podcast, where we're getting all lit up with the Wollongong Writers' Festival. If you'd like to know more about Wollongong Writers' Festival, go to www.wollongongwritersfestival.com or you can follow them on Twitter and Facebook. This is Let the Light In on Truth and Vulnerability in YA with Lauren Elizabeth, Helena Fox and Erin Goff. Thanks for being here at the very beginning of the Wollongong Writers Festival. Um, I would like to start by acknowledging that we are meeting on Aboriginal land, the land of the Wadi Wadi people of Darawal country, whose sovereignty was never ceded. I'd like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging and to all First Nations people here today. This land is, was and always will be Aboriginal land and as we gather here over the weekend to tell stories, uh, we should remember and respect all the thousands of stories that have been told on this land before us and all the ones that have been silenced since colonialism. My name is Lauren Elizabeth. I'm here as a bookseller with the best little bookshop in town downstairs selling books and I would love you to join me in welcoming our lovely authors Helena Fox and Erin Goff. I might, just for the sake of being a professional, read their bios quickly to introduce them further. Helena Fox lives in Wollongong, Australia, where she mentors and runs writing workshops for young writers. Her debut novel, How It Feels to Float, was published in 2019 by Penguin Random House in North America and Pan Macmillan in Australia New Zealand. She has an MFA in creative writing from Warren Wilson College in the US. And Erin is the author of two books for young adults, The Flywheel, which won the Ampersand Prize, and Amelia Westlake, winner of the Readings Young Adult Book Prize and the New South Wales Premier's Ethel Turner Prize for Young Adult Fiction. We're so excited to be chatting about vulnerability and truth today. Our panel is called Let the Light In. Um, I thought we could maybe start off with an introduction to our main characters, um, Will and Harriet and Biz and how they sort of first emerged for both of you guys and why they emerged into the world of YA in particular. Um, okay, well, Biz uh, first appeared to me in just snippets and glimpses about eight years ago um, and I found myself writing these fragments um, based on some photographs that I had on my computer and every now and then I'd just open up a, a photograph and then out would come this voice and I remember one um, being just a series of um, like parts of like a playground and it was um, you know like a slide or splotches of cloud on a playground floor and and this person this voice said portrait of my family and I was like that's interesting. And, um, and the more that I wrote these little um, glimpses, um, the more this voice appeared of this young kind of vulnerable, not young, young, but, uh, you know, mid, mid-teens um, girl who was vulnerable, lonely, dealing with um, the loss of her dad and um, 
just really kind of fascinatedly interested in um, quantum physics. So <laughs> I remember thinking, you're really interesting and starting to write into her voice and discovering she was in, you know, her senior years of high school. Um, and so it wasn't ever an intentional um, decision to write a YA book, it was that this was the voice that appeared. And I think it was influenced by um, the fact that I am a mentor to young writers and that is the kind of the demographic and I have um, – I had children, you know, by then they were younger but now they are the age of these characters. Um, and uh, so I think I was influenced by the people I was hanging out with and the books I was reading and um, it just seemed to come naturally. And so even though her voice appeared eight years ago, I did have to wait about six years till I knew how to do her story justice but it was very organic it happened very very organically for me all right so will and harriet i'll just give you a little bit of a rundown about what kind of characters they are and then i'll describe um where they came from so harriet and will are both uh students at a very posh girls school in sydney and Harriet is one of those really annoying uh, prefect types who always does the right thing. She plays by the rules. Uh, she's very concerned about um, uh, making sure that she impresses those people around her. She's also incredibly optimistic, which is can be very annoying. And uh, she, you know, she sucks up to the teachers and all of that kind of thing. Will, on the other hand, is kind of the opposite. So she's a bit of a rat bag. She likes to break the rules. She's a social justice uh, warrior and incredibly negative about the world and very much the half-class empty person and probably a lot more – she thinks she's a lot more woke than she actually is. So um, for me, these characters represent – Kind of, in in a sense, they represent the person that I was at high school, that's Harriet, uh, versus the person that I probably am now. That's one way of thinking about it. I guess the other reason that they developed uh, in contrast to each other was because I was really interested in exploring the extremes of that type of personality and how they would interact and also writing an opposites attract romance because... It's really fun um, and I think just kind of I wanted to have characters where that were deeply flawed who learn about their different flaws um, throughout the novel and I thought a good way of doing that would be for them to challenge each other in certain ways and I think that journey for me, um, you know, has continued all my life but I think it was very, uh, very accentuated when I was at high school um, and so – because of the themes that I wanted to explore in the novel, it made sense to set it uh, in high school and for them to be high school characters. Can we talk a little bit about the Amelia Westlake hoax and how that actually comes from some lived experience? Sure thing. So when I was at a posh girls' school in Sydney, um, in my final year of school, I I came up with a hoax with uh, two of my friends and that hoax was called Amelia Westlake. So basically we invented an imaginary student um, and we got her to do things around the school and waited to see if anybody noticed. So we started things like we would just put her name down on, say, you know, 
who wants to join this social netball team? We just put a name down and people would be like, Amelia, where, is, she, is she in our year? Know, the name sounds familiar but I'm not quite sure. Like I couldn't place it. And then we would do things like you could take announcements up to the office to be read out in assembly. Like um, so we took one up um, that said Amelia Westlake has lost her trumpet. <laughs> um, if anybody finds it, could they please return it to the Year 12 common room? Um People started to get a little bit more suspicious and until quite quickly it became blatantly obvious that there was no Amelia Westlake, at which point we got quite bold in our um, pranks. So we started sending cryptic postcards um, to members of our class from exotic locations and uh, donating prizes to the trivia night and we actually entered a, an artwork in the HSC art competition, <laughs> which is a bit cheeky, um, that was just like a giant question mark <laughs> with um, one of those, you know, very, uh, <clears throat> um, you know, they always have something very deep and profound, the artists, to explain the artwork. I can't remember, but it was very profound um, in a cheeky way. So... That's where the idea for the hoax came from. Now, when I was at high school, um, I don't, I didn't really have any sense of, um, I guess, what Amelia Westlake in, in my book explores is kind of challenging the power structures of the school. I would love to have had the confidence to use the hoax to do that at the school, but I didn't. It was very much um, a, just a bit of fun, but it has been really nice in literature to kind of take it to the next level and to use the hoax to explore some more political elements of, of what's going on in a school like that. Awesome. Thank you. Um, Helena, you just mentioned that you pulled from some of your real-life experiences as well to construct biz from motherhood, from teaching young people. And sort of the reason I wanted to frame this panel around ideas of vulnerability and truth sprung from this relationship between biz and biz's mum in how it feels to float um, and in how wholesome that seemed to be. And that was refreshing to me in the world of YA to have a mother-daughter relationship that could be wholesome and loving and didn't have to entirely exist in the teen rebellion sort of trope. Um, can you talk to us about creating nuanced relationships and why that might be important for a young audience to engage with? Um, again, everything, um, you know, looking at how I actually created this book, a lot of it happened very unconsciously and um, most of the intention happened in like, the editing side of it. So a lot of it just kind of poured out and I think it just happened that I wrote um, either relationships that I already had with the young people in my life um, or I kind of wrote relationships I had and then wish I had also had as a young person. Um, so in regards to um, the connection between Biz and her mum, I was thinking of two people who you know, experienced a profound trauma and how um, at some point all they really had was each other and certainly in some situations that can detonate and become very difficult as two people live through um, that kind of grief and trauma. Um, but for some they bond and become tighter and if you've only got that one other person then um, 
then maybe, and especially if you keep moving from town to town, you might actually end up being friends and supporting each other. And, and certainly Biz keeps secrets from her mum, which, you know, looking, looking at it, it's like how much of it was protecting Biz and how much of it was her protecting her mum because her mum is actually quite fragile too and you, we don't explore that super deeply in the book but there's elements of it in the in um just hinted at it I've hinted at it in the book and um and I do actually have a really close connection with my kids and I have a really close connection with my students um I've been incredibly fortunate to have um, a mentorship um, slash friendship with a lot of my students where if they're having a hard day, I remember there was one student in particular um, who was going through a pretty tough time at school and I remember just we would sit and eat toast and have tea until she felt comfortable enough to start working. And, you know, and I so it, from that kind of – and I've always wanted to be like – a person that supported young people and, and was a listener and was somebody who was available just to listen or just offer a, a safe space and that's what all my workshops are about. So I think that just naturally kind of fed into the book and then um, I had a beautiful relationship with my grandmother um, for the time that I knew her and so I also wrote not just Biz and her mum but Biz and an older woman called Sylvia who um, I kind of think if I had, I did have, I, I had a great relationship with my mum, but, you know, it was a pretty dysfunctional childhood. Um, and I kind of think, oh, I kind of created a Sylvia, like here's a, here's a comfort space. Here's someone who, who I would have loved to have in my life as a young person. And so I guess I wrote relationships I had and dream relationships I think that and I think it's so healthy to know that there are safe adults that there are people you can turn to if you're having a stuck moment who aren't going to necessarily tell you everything to do or um you know they're not necessarily going to be like this is what you've got to this is how you're going to fix your life but hey here's a cup of tea and so Sylvia offers tea and just bake muffins and and the mum you know uh, I do love the mum. She's so vulnerable and she's so, you know, it's like, have I stuffed it up? Have I not stuffed it up? You know, <laughs> she's all, there's just so much love in the book, which is not surprising really when I'm just kind of, kind of pretty gooey. <laughs> so I love that. I'm glad you talked about Sylvia because it is like as soon as you get to a chapter that starts with Sylvia or the camera, you are like, you feel warm and fuzzy inside. Um, there are a lot of, issues in both of the books um, that, that we explore as we read um, and maybe we can talk about sort of the premonition of the Me Too movement in Amelia Westlake and this idea of um, the, the power structure in schools and and the way sexual harassment comes into the storyline and the bravery surrounding that coming forward and is it ever scary to write about those sort of topics for a young audience in particular um how do you make sure you're doing the right thing by your readers yeah that's a big question um yeah look I guess I mean perhaps I should start by saying that the reason that I chose to write about that in Amelia Westlake was because I started writing the book 
around the time that there was a lot in the news about the Royal Commission into child sexual institutional child sexual abuse and it got me thinking a lot about the structures that operate within institutions and how they can disadvantage kids. Um, and, you know, it made me reflect upon my own, own school experience and and I guess the kind of – also the kind of vulnerabilities that um, – or how vulnerabilities can be accentuated if, for example, you're a queer young person um, – and a female queer young person, I was interested in those vulnerabilities. Um, but I guess I was also interested in trying to make sure that a young readership recognised that while in a lot of ways they might be disadvantaged and might be powerless, there are ways to find your voice. And so I wanted to have that balance in the book and that's why I um, I chose this vehicle of the hoax, which was a way for these two young women to kind of find their voice and rally those around them to actually affect change. Because I think part of being able to affect change, and this is what we've seen since in the Me Too movement, hopefully, is, um, is the mass movement, you know. If you, if you have... Um, one person standing up, then two or three per- people can stand up and et cetera, and you can get hundreds and thousands of people um, raising their voice and making a difference. In terms of how I choose to write this in a way that is, I guess, accessible and also um, uh, I guess gentle in respect of those issues uh, is I do use a lot of humour in my writing. Um, I, I guess I choose humour because it's it's a it's something that has always been a way you know in my family for example that um, we have coped with difficult things. Uh, uh, there is quite a bit of trauma in my family history, and I think on the side of my family where that trauma is most acute is actually the side where. We all take a lot of pride in our family sense of humour. Um, it's become a bit of a defining feature of our family. And so for me it is a really good way, particularly for a young audience and, in fact, actually for anybody, in um, in dealing with potentially very difficult and um, traumatic issues is to, to, to deal with them through humour. There's a great sassy irony, sarcasm to Will's um, voice and character that's so prevalent in Emily Westlake. It's really great. Um, maybe we will break out for a short reading from Helena um, from How It Feels to Float, everybody. All right. I thought this might be a good little excerpt to give you a hint at how Biz sees the world and also the one of the key relationships that she has in the book is with actually her dad who passed away when she was young. Um, so I'll start from the kind of partway through this chapter. On the walk to school, the cicadas keep me company. They scream from one huge gum tree to another. I pass the community centre, I pass the park, I get to the end of the cul-de-sac and wait under the bleaching sun to cross the freeway. 
Traffic balls past. I can feel my skin frying. I can feel cancer pooling in my freckles. I can feel the road tar melting under my feet as I scurry across the road. Past the freeway, there's a vet, a pub, and a train station. Every day I have to cross the train tracks to get to school. Every time I think, what if the signals are wrong and a train comes out of the blue and hits me as I cross? A woman walked against the signal once, not here, but close enough it might as well be here. She was in a rush, they said. She ignored the ringing bells, the dropping barrier. She got halfway and thought better of it. She turned back. The train came. Every time I cross the tracks, I think of her and try not to think of her. I've traced and retraced her last moments in my head. I have Googled her and I know the names of her family, the job she had, the music she listened to, and the last concert she saw before she died. I can feel the tightness of her skin when she saw the train and how sweat sprang up a moment before the train hit, step, and how our pupils widened, step, and turned my eyes to black, step. And in that infinite molecular moment, I can't remember if I meant to cross or have I paused on the tracks and am waiting here. Hey, Biz. I turn my head. Dad's walking beside me, barefoot, in his running shorts and kiss T-shirt. Do you remember your first train ride? No, I don't remember that, Dad. It was a steam train. You were four. We went through a rainforest. We went really high up a mountain and visited a butterfly sanctuary. And you flapped around like a monarch. You were beautiful. Is that right, Dad? You should flap around. Try it, Biz. It'll shake off the frets. I look down. I'm over the train tracks and past the station. I'm on the path. It opens in front of me, green grass on both sides, the sun beaming. I think of butterflies. I think of flying. Dad laughs. He's gone by the time I reach the school gate. Can we talk briefly, Helena, about your exploration of grief and mental health, which is such a big part of how it feels to float. And as an author, is do you have a process for writing that? Is it hard to go into that floating space with Biz? Um, well, with with this story, um, I have I have my own history with um, mental health issues and with um, grief and complex PTSD. And I didn't set out consciously to write a book about my life, but I think what happened and I think is actually a one way to actually process your own mental health story or your own story is to maybe I think of it as writing sideways where I took a fictional girl and I imagined um, her doing things and having lived experiences that were different from mine. But as I wrote it quite um, naturally and again organically in popped my own rea reactions and responses and, and lived moments. So, um, like, for example, the train track woman is somebody um, real and somebody I actually did Google and, and all of that. And so it's a very tender moment for me. And um, so it's things that I didn't go, oh, I'm going to write my life into this story. It just kind of happened that there were these – it's almost like 
touching points, you know, where something touches and resonates, touches and resonates, um, very interwoven. Um, and the other thing about this book is um, I actually was experiencing some pretty profound dissociation while writing this book. Um, and I was dealing with uh, a loss of my own and, uh, uh, you know, childhood traumas of my own. And um, it was, and I think that's why I was dissociating. I, everything had just kind of come to a head and, and it was about six months long, that period. It was, it was not fun. Um, but what was really interesting is somebody said once, oh, wasn't it um, hard to write a book in that state or um, was it more distressing to write a book in that state? And actually for me, it was my ground. It was the place, the place I could return to. I set up where um, I could write for three hours every morning and it was like everything else could be a bit wishy, you know, a little bit, you know, gauzy, a little bit hard, indistinct, a little bit hard to touch the truth of it. Um, but when I sat at the desk and I was writing Biz in her strong, strong voice and her humour, she has actually a lot of humour, a lot of that sarcastic humour and, and just... Um, and there were moments of real joy as well in the story and there was a testament, you know, honouring love. Um, so for me, returning to those pages with this really powerful, bright voice, um, everything else could be foggy but there was this ground in this book and, and I, I do think of it as I, I held on to Biz and we came through it onto the other side and it was I did write in an interview at one point um, kind of looked up and I'd written a book <laughs> and that was such a gift I felt I feel so grateful for for this book and for Biz and and when the book came out it was just the day before my launch um I was waiting to do a radio interview a local radio interview and I was sitting and I was so nervous oh my god and uh and I could it was almost like a physical feeling it was like Biz was right there in a chair next to me and I thought okay here we go yeah, it was really beautiful. Thanks, Elena. Uh, we might hear a short excerpt from Amelia Westlake. All right, I've managed to find two pages that aren't full of sarcastic jokes. Uh, so, so these pages, um, I guess, touch upon the vulnerability of of the young woman um, who is sexually harassed and feels like she is powerless to act. Um, and then the second half of the passage is about the vulnerability of young love, which, um, you know, we all feel very, very vulnerable in love, I think. Okay. Um, so it's a conversation between Will and Harriet um, and it's from Harriet's perspective. When I look up from the phone, Will has me in her gaze. Can you tell me exactly what's stopping you from making that complaint? I take my time putting my phone in my bag. I think about the sports committee meeting earlier and coaches innuendo about the new change rooms. I grimace. I've already told you so many things, I say. Like? I cross my legs and uncross them. I straighten the sheet on her bed. Mostly it just seems petty. It was such a minor thing. I feel so vexatious. He'd said plenty of worse things to other girls and no one else has complained. 
And besides, what's the point when I know the school won't do anything about it anyway, except for make my life difficult? It's like what you said about our charity cake stalls. It's not worth the bother. I can't remember saying that about your cake stalls, says Will. If I said it that, I was wrong. And I think you're wrong now. She readjusts her hand on the pile of pillows. To begin with, just because it seems like a minor thing in comparison to more horrible things, that doesn't make it right. That's like saying breaking and entering is okay because murder exists. Secondly, it, makes, it matters that you speak out because if you don't, this kind of thing will keep happening. Not to you, maybe, but to other students. Possibly worse things. You realise that, don't you? Of course, I say. It might not always feel like it, but you've got power when others don't, which means that even if what Hadley said to you wasn't haunting you, which it clearly is, and even if there was no one else at risk when there clearly is, you're in a position to say something where others aren't. If only it were as simple as Will makes it sound. I still don't know. All right, I think I'll stop there. Now we might open up to audience questions in one second, so have a little think about what you'd like to ask that I haven't touched on already. But I do want to check in about one of the heartwarming parts of your book, which is how you depict the queer relationships um, in such a refreshing and already established way. I think a lot of the time still in YA, we're in the exploratory phase, we're in the let's teach our audience how to read queer relationships. But in Amelia Westlake, they're sort of already there and that's so beautiful. Can you tell us a bit about why that's important? Yeah, it is something that I really try to do in my books is just take the queer relationships in the book as a given. Uh, and obviously characters face homophobia because that's part of life. But um, I, I feel like it's important for queer readers just to see themselves as part of the story and to have the story focused on them without it just being, oh, it's a big deal that you're queer. Because I think as all of us know, um, there are different parts of us that make us up as humans and just because I'm queer, I mean, obviously that's a huge part of who I am, um, but it doesn't need to be about that self-discovery. Every book doesn't need to be about that self-discovery. I think it's really important that there, there are books that are because it's an important journey and it's actually a journey that we continue to go through throughout our lives. But I guess I'm also, particularly in Amelia Westlake, I had other things that I wanted to explore. I wanted to explore how that kind of identity intersects with things like how you experience sexual harassment, for example, and what it means to be a queer woman but also a white, educated, very middle-class queer woman and what that means in terms of your power and your responsibility. And I know I said we would bounce to the audience but just quickly off the back of that answer, we talked briefly before we started about place and how um, the location of setting your book in Sydney or setting your book in Wollongong is important for your readers in terms of connection but also maybe in terms of um, reflecting the geographical and sometimes the, the school settings that we get stuck in and can't um, see other perspectives from. Um, do you guys want to chat about that briefly? Well, I was just saying beforehand to Elena how much 
I loved that How It Feels to Float was set in Wollongong and what a strong sense of place the book offered. Um, and um, and I think it is, it's really important. I mean, I think often uh, people, you know, there is a bit of a cultural cringe when it comes to Australian literature and something that I love about Australian literature and that I think is an advertisement for it is that Australian writers who are writing about Australia and set their books in Australia, there is that real connection you can get as a reader and that resonance and that um, recognition, which is such an important part of the of the reading journey. I know that um, my students, when they read my book, and I was saying this before the panel started as well, it kind of tripped them out that they were walking past schools they knew and across uh, bridges they knew and went to markets that they knew and and somebody said it was just the oddest feeling and kind of like this lovely you've you've said my place matters enough to put it in a book and i also really like that i wrote a place that was very grounded in australia but I, i'm really fortunate that it then got published in the us with really all, no modifications other than the spelling and I'm really happy about that. I'm really happy that um, – and it wasn't kitschy, like I didn't make it cute Australia. You know, it was just an Australian town, Australian teenagers. Um, and what was – I actually had a funny moment where somebody wrote a review. Um, I know you're not meant to read your reviews. I read some on Goodreads, whatever. Um, but there was someone saying, oh, I got – there was just so much profanity. I have – I couldn't, couldn't read <laughs> – and there's a lot. <laughs> and, I, and I remember telling uh, some of my writing students and they said, have they never been to like a high school? And someone said, have they never been to like a Wollongong high school? And I was like, there we go, you know. <laughs> it was really lovely. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay, audience, this is your time. What would you like to know um, from Helena and Erin? So the question's about how, how you create unique characters – for me, I think it's all in the voice. Um, I, I can't really figure out what my story's about until I know exactly who's telling it. And I think um, when you focus on making a really unique voice, then quite naturally you might have, um, create some a storyline that goes out of, um, you know, maybe typical – obviously there are certain um, – even with like a great voiced – character you might have some traditional like more you know familiar tropes of plot structure or you know oh here we are in a high school or you know something like that which is fine I think as long as you have you know I I love those stories where you step into um it's almost like this recognition that you're meeting someone new and it always for me happens in the voice so that's what I focus on I I can't really write a book until I know that voice really well so that's how it happened for me absolutely i think so for amelia westlake i wrote the book in alternating voices so one chapter is i think it starts with will and then it moves to harriet moves to will moves to harriet and my idea was that you should be able to pick up the book at any point and read a sentence or two and know which character it is. Um, so I spent a lot of time, for example, uh, putting together a vocabulary list for each of the characters in terms of uh, the words that they like to use. Um, and 
that needed to be an expression of their personality, the words that they like to use. And I certainly feel like that's something you can actually do if you're not writing in the first person. I'm actually writing a piece at the moment that is in the third person. Um, but it is absolutely a way to get into the character. Um, and one of the things that I really love about um, how it feels to float that comes across really strongly in terms of the voice is how you use um, the ratios. Yes. <laughs> so Biz has a thing about like comparing things, one thing to another thing by talking about it by way of ratios. And that kind of little technique I think is really effective in kind of creating a cohesive voice. And you've definitely, you know, I noticed with Amelia Westlake, it was like, oh, here I am with Harriet. Oh, here I am with Will. And I really loved that and want to go on from that. I'm working on a, a new piece now and a new project. And it, I wrote 15,000 words of the new project and looked at it and went, oh, hi, Biz. <laughs> and it was like, oh, i got to start again. <laughs> so, you know, while I had a story idea, I hadn't found the voice, so that was really interesting. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is stepping into it as a debut author, this uh, YA community, the Oz YA community in particular, has been one of the most unbelievably warm loving experiences of my life um I didn't really know well you know you just you're it's like I was talking with my family and I said it's you know you're out you're on the outside looking in and then suddenly you're in like you've walked in through the store and you're in this community and the arms that were open to me like just read your book so happy you know like so happy you're here it's like welcome just come just come and be here with us and and the the breadth of um topics and the you know speaking of truth and vulnerability um just what these writers are willing to tackle that you know just the gamut you know of 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 vulnerable topics and important topics has I it's been such an honor to step into this community and and be welcomed but also to be just taken you know just taken away by the the honesty and the um and the power of of these writers so I, I feel like I don't know I I'm still kind of on the outside going wow I'm sitting next to Aaron Gomb <laughs> But then on the other hand, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, here we are together and that's – it's. I do love this community. It's Yeah, that's amazing. absolutely – and, uh, you know, I've said this in the, in the past as well. It feels like the most supportive workplace I have ever worked in um, and it's actually a virtual workplace most of the time. But um, everyone is lovely. Everyone supports each other. There's no sense that you're competing against each other. There is a sense that you're building – a body of work together. Yeah. Um, it feels like a golden age, but of why of Ozway literature. But I hope it isn't. I hope this just continues to get better and better. And to to close, thank you all for being here. This is actually the first YA event that Wollongong Writers Festival has ever held, which is sort of testament to what you guys are saying building an empire um so <laughs> thank you for all you guys for supporting the first YA event at the festival it's great to have you all here um but please join me in thanking them both If you'd like to hear more from Wollongong Writers Festival, because trust me, there's some really amazing sessions yet to drop, or you just want to hear more from regional writing festivals, 
then head on over to our website, www.rightsforwomen.com forward slash rights for festivals. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the Rights for Festivals podcast, or you can go and subscribe wherever you get your pods, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, all those good places. Please do give us a rating and review because then we can spread the goodness and other people can find us too. Thank you so much for listening to the Rights for Festivals podcast and supporting regional writing festivals. This podcast episode was produced, recorded and edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting. 